If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 20 today. And really, this text is pretty self-explanatory. It's a weird text. It's a supernatural text. Uh, Luke, but Luke, once again, is just kind of giving us the details of what happened. Um, and what I want us to do is step back and, and, uh, with this text uh, as the diving board to explore what the Scripture has to say about this cosmic battle that we call spiritual warfare. Um, and I want us to explore uh, the, the reality of personal evil. Uh, not for the purpose of being sensational, not for the purpose of creating fear, but actually that we might actually engage in the battle that we are called to engage in, in a way that is biblical and Christ-honoring, uh, as we are considering as a church making radical moves uh, to bring the gospel aggressively to the city. It is inevitable, if we are preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, that we will uh, run into spiritual warfare that we are going to be dealing with challenges that are coming at us uh, from that unseen reality that is happening all around us. And so I think it's important for us as a church to think through these issues biblically. And let's ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about spiritual warfare in regards to this text? Well, let me start off by just reading to you a verse from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. Let's see what the Apostle Paul uh, whom this text in Acts is about, uh, let's see what Paul had to say about this unseen reality. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, this is not a guy who seemed to take lightly the idea of spiritual warfare, nor is it a guy who seemed to diminish the reality of personal evil. He saw evil as something uh, that, that, was, that was a reality, that was a personal reality, uh, that there is a battle against God's children, against the world, against the work of Jesus. And he was very clear about that throughout his letters. Uh, I just finished a book by a Lutheran theologian, Robert W. Jensen. He just passed away. He's a great American theologian. And he wrote this little book um, called Can These Bones Live? An Outline in, in Theology, in which he basically defends uh, the Apostles' Creed. What is the church's orthodox or historic view uh, of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And in one uh, chapter, he deals actually with the church's belief in personal evil, specifically in its belief in the devil. And he says this, he says, the existence of a tempter, i.e. Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the old serpent, etc., is an ongoing conviction, not just of Christianity, but also of Judaism. And this reflects more than anything else a common experience. There does seem to be somebody out there laughing at us. I was very skeptical about the existence of Satan until I made that observation. The disasters that happen could just be disasters, but we seem to be mocked by them. And that is the main title of Satan throughout the tradition. He is the mocker, the one out there laughing at us. Have you guys seen that movie, Usual Suspects? The narrator, Roger Kent, said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And I believe I was also like, 
I, I, I found myself a lot like Robert Jensen, that when I first moved to Portland uh, and started Door of Hope, I think I had this, this uh, skepticism of personal evil, uh, of the demonic, if you will. I, I think really more than anything is that growing up uh, in the 80s where within the world of evangelicalism, there was a lot of sensational talk about Satanism and in demon worship. And I was weirded out by coming to faith and Christians being up in arms about witchcraft. And I, I was a part of a church that, you know, don't celebrate Halloween, celebrate Harvest Day. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's, they're both pagan events. Uh, but, uh, you know, like the danger of Harry Potter, but the acceptance of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which has witch in the title. I'm like, I find, you, I find Christians really confusing. That was kind of my thought. And so for me, the natural kind of pushback was to be like, I think that Christians are over-talk personal evil. And I realized the silliness of this once I started a church in Portland, which there does literally, and I'm like, I'm like there are not demons under every rock, but there might be here. Uh, and, and here's the thing, as what I realized is that we're so comfortable as Christians, we think we actually make ourselves more sensible to the, to the modern mind by diminishing the belief in personal evil. But at the same time, we still want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that God actually entered into his own creation, took on flesh and blood, identified with human brokenness. We're very comfortable with the concept of that. We're comfortable with the fact that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. There's nothing weird about that statement. Uh, that Jesus on the cross of Calvary did something that we don't even understand, which is he actually radically changed the future of creation by absorbing into himself the brokenness of the world. And that on the third day, he rose from the dead, that he showed himself to his followers, and then after 40 days ascended, just was taken up into the clouds, and then offered to send his Holy Spirit, which we studied that. Everyone's comfortable with that. Everybody wants the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, to all those who put their faith in him, we become born again, and we're new creations. That's not weird at all. You know? So, hey, if you cut demons and the devil out, everyone will totally buy what you have to say about Christianity. I just want you to know, if you've already crossed the threshold of faith in Christ, you've crossed the threshold, okay? So this is, this, is, this is an important subject matter. I think it's important for us to understand that Western civilization in all its intellectual and rational glory has come up against a wall when it comes to explaining evil from a natural standpoint. I actually was listening to, um, listening to an intellectual give a conversation about why it is that he um, was beginning to find himself believing in the supernatural, uh, believing in the possibility of God, and his reasoning for believing in the possibility of God is he said there is no human explanation for the evils of the 20th century other than that there is personal, invisible evil happening. <laughs> uh, and I think, I think that he is onto something. The rejection of a literal devil and demons is superstition, uh, an original sin as a fabrication of religious fanatics has done nothing to advance a solution, but only worsen the dilemma. I think C.S. Lewis, uh, in this preface to the screw tape letters, which every Christian starts, but very few Christians finish, and I think that it, it's the weirdest thing. I, I've, every time I've brought up the screw tape letters, I like to ask how many people have read the screw tape letters, and like so many hands raised, I'm like, how many did not finish the screw tape letters? And it's most hands. And I think it has to do with the subject matter. 
I think it has to do with there's a discomfort. Even when it's done in this kind of comical, comical way that Lewis approaches it, there's something very serious about that book. He said it took a toll on him. But in, the, in his preface, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And I think that that's true. And that we're not here to put an overemphasis um, upon the demonic realm. I'm not trying to turn the church into, into a group of exorcists where we are out there looking for demons to cast out. Um, as we will see, the way that we battle the devil is through proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. So, uh, I want us to understand that the enemy's primary ambition in regards to God's children is to destroy our testimony by tempting us to function in independence from our maker. So, let's jump into this text, and then I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to really utilize this text, and I, I will say this is more of a topical message um, out of a out of a verse-by-verse verse look at Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, uh, Beginning here with, as John Stock called it, and I thought it was really funny, a power encounter. Uh, I don't know why a power encounter just sounds like something from a televangelist show. Um, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, I want you just to note right there, before I can get into the uh, kind of a biblical overview of spiritual warfare, Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. Paul, or Luke adds to the word miracles extraordinary or singular, that this was exceptional, that this isn't, repet this isn't something that can be repeated, uh, that this is something that God was doing to, uh, in, 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 in ways to give his apostolic credentials, credence. That, in other words, Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles God did incredible miracles to him to validate and affirm his ministry as an apostle, as one who started churches and brought the gospel. In fact, Paul did not go around as an exorcist, that he went around as one who proclaimed the good news in power, in word, and in deed. Uh, but this is a time where extraordinary miracles were done by the hands of Paul. It says, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, Paul did regard the miracles that Christ, by his Spirit, accomplished through him as his apostolic credentials. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul said, once again, these are my apostolic credentials. God is validating the ministry that I am doing in the name of Jesus. Uh, through these signs and wonders. Now, I don't know about you, but before I was a believer, uh, back uh, in the early 90s, one of the things that I would do as a pastime when I was doing things I ought not to be doing uh, was to watch late night over snacks, late night televangelists on TBN because it was crazy, <laughs> the stuff that was going on. And I remember all the, the faith seeds, you know, you give, if you give money to me, God will bless you with even more money. Or even worse, the you know, miracle water handkerchiefs. And I can't remember the name of that pastor that did that, but it was like he held up like this green handkerchief. And he's like, if you give me so much money, the sweat from my brow will bring, will bring healing to your body. Fraudulent. 
fraudulent, fraudulent. Uh, to take, first of all, I think that it is deeply disturbing to think that we can that we can turn the works of God into some sort of mechanical repeat, that we can just utilize the name of Jesus for our own advance. And sadly, people do that all the time. Uh, what we have here is Jesus continuing to do his work through the Apostle Paul. And you remember, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 8, verse 43, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched the hem of his, of his robe and was healed of bleeding. Uh, and, it, and it's not Paul that's doing these signs. It's not, it's not Paul's sweat that's magic. God chooses through these, th- through these unique experiences to bring healing to people, physical healing. And I just want you to notice before we get into spiritual warfare that there is a distinguishing reality between physical healing from illness and demonic oppression where demons are cast out. And look what, go- what happens Verses 13 through 17. So Luke uses this to jump into something that was happening in Ephesus at the time. And here we move from the power of Paul's ministry to the pretense of those that thought they could use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which is the only time, by the way, in the New Testament, the word exorcist appears, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you. You notice that Luke and all the writers of the New Testament write about the presence of demons very matter-of-fact. It's just a reality. It's a reality. Uh, He says, Invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What a weird way to cast out demons. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. By the way, there is no uh, recorded high priest named Sceva in Jewish history. Um, So, Luke is really revealing here scam artists, those who are pretending to be of office. Um, But the evil spirit answered them. I think this is so fascinating. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them. We don't fully know what what this means exactly. Mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So I just like to picture that, because that just sounds absolutely crazy. Uh, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So here it seems like there's a victory for the demonic realm, but actually God in his masterful providence even utilizes this uh, to bring about even greater expansion of the proclamation of the gospel. It uh, It says this became known to Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all. The spiritual reality um, had touched with the visible reality in a way that the city became very aware of something bigger than what it is that they experienced with their senses. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So I, I think this is the, the one thing, to be sure there is power, saving and healing power in the name of Jesus, um, as Luke has uh, been at pains to illustrate here, but its efficacy is not mechanical. Uh, they thought they could just utilize the name of Jesus to cast out demons, but it is Jesus who casts out demons. And to, to function as conduits of the, uh, of the gospel is that we are, that's the exact reality. We are conduits by which the Spirit of God uh, works through. And Jesus was not going to allow himself to be utilized in this way, not, not at this point. In fact, he 
works through the situation, but not through their attempts to capitalize on his name. Uh, and it says, nor can people use it secondhand. I think that it's really important for us to understand. But the thing that I want to point out for us as a church, I want to raise the question that, that I think is really important. Does the enemy know us? Does the enemy know us? Jesus, we know. Paul, we have heard of. But who are you? I think that this is why I get so nervous every time I have ever preached on spiritual warfare is because every time I have preached on spiritual warfare, something insane has happened. Uh, and so la the first time I did a whole series on spiritual warfare, I ended up in eight months of severe anxiety because the devil is real and he hates us. And if there is no spiritual warfare, then we are not functioning as we ought to as a community of faith. And I think that this is very important as we move forward. Because look what the outcome of this, this movement is. It's almost like revival is beginning to take place in Ephesus. For in verses 18 through 20, it says, Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging of their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Uh, and now I just want you to know that if you guys are familiar with the Jesus movement, this text was often utilized as a call for for young Christians who were getting radically saved um, to release the ways of the world. And so they would call, so you, you, you see, I've seen videos of like during the Jesus movement where all the young people bring their records um, and they burn their vinyl. But I don't think that that's what the Lord was talking about because all that did was open up the gates of hell for contemporary Christian music. Um, so I think that uh, I, I, I think we would have been a lot better off keeping those Bob Dylan records and the Beatles records right where they were, because uh, look, it, it's, the enemy won there, guys. I mean, <laughs> and I, I remember I was forced to watch a video at a church when I was a kid about, about how the devil's in, in, in the rock and roll, uh, and he might be, but I think that he made his way into some other musical forms as well, because friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. Just quoting Michael W. Smith. I'm not insinuating that's an evil song. It's the first song I ever sang in church, okay? Um, uh, so I will say this, though. When I first went to church after I became a believer when I was 28, I, I do remember thinking to myself, what is this music? Uh, and, just, and I would, it was terrifying to me. Um, so I, I think that this is the point, is that the church recognized the spiritual battle, and they were treating their faith maybe like a playground, like we often do, not taking seriously the call to be completely surrendered to Christ, still keeping one foot in the world while trying to follow after Jesus, and this realization that, they weren't, that, that something serious was happening, that Jesus deserved their entire devotion, and they weren't going to allow their life to be controlled. You can't have two masters. You can't serve the devil and serve Jesus. And I want to get into this later because you can think to yourself, well, they were actually into witchcraft. Uh, they, were, they, they were giving up books of spells and whatnot. But I, I, I'm gonna, when I lay out this, this, this biblical vision of, of spiritual warfare, I, I don't think we should be too, too comfortable saying that that's not us, is my point. So, what happens? 
They brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all and they continued the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When the church got serious, serious about the call to enter into the battle, to be conduits of the gospel, the word of God prevailed over the demonic realities. And I want you guys to understand that I believe that there are cities that are under spiritual strongholds and I believe that Portland has a spiritual stronghold over it. And I believe that only the gospel can set it free. Uh, and we are called as a, as, a, as a church, as a community of faith, to take seriously spiritual warfare. And so I want you guys to realize this. As C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, this is so good. He says, Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. So I want to give you guys seven things that the Bible teaches um, about spiritual warfare, about the demonic realities, that we can understand the power of this text in the context of what's happening behind the scenes that Luke is trying to get our, help us get our heads around. Um, the first thing that I want you guys to understand this about, about spiritual warfare is that the Bible teaches us that life is a battleground, not a playground. And that behind life's difficulties, there is both a natural and supernatural evil at work. That evil itself is multidimensional. That behind the visible conflict or at the back of it, there is an unseen conflict between forces of good and evil, and we are that battlefield. Now, I like to say that, that there is evil. When I say it's multifaceted, I will say first and foremost that there is evil inside of me, just as there is evil inside of you. And that is that, that we are plagued with this, this unfortunate reality called sin. Sin is that rebellion against God's rule or rejection of God's, God's grace. What does the enemy, I say, want to do? He wants to get us to live independently from God. I'm telling you right now that if the devil died today, you will continue to sin tomorrow. And you, will, you don't need the devil to help you uh, function in sin. <laughs> uh, the, the reality is, is that there is a fundamental brokenness. Every part of us is what... what Theologians call total depravity. It doesn't mean that everything about you is bad. It means that everything in you has been infiltrated by the bad. Everything in you is mixture. I think that's important. But not only is there evil inside of me, but because there is also evil inside of you, there is evil outside of us. And we see that in conflicts all around the world. We see that in wars. We see that, we see that in politics. We see that in business. We see that in our entertainment. There is evil all around us. But what the Bible teaches is that there is evil above us, that there is a supernatural reality uh, that is at play, that plays on these already built-in tendencies in the human existence. And I think that that is really important for us to understand. So life is not a playground, even though Portland likes to pretend it is. It is a battleground. Ephesians chapter 6 is clear. I started off with, with this very statement. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul saw the universe as a cosmic battleground. 
a cosmic battleground. Secondly, the Bible teaches that there is a personal supernatural evil and that that evil is not simply a principle but is a person. The church has traditionally held that he is a fallen angel to whom scripture calls the devil, Satan, the God of this age, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of air. That Jesus believed in him as well as all the writers of the New Testament means that we should probably take him seriously as well. I think when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is Satan's primary role? Is he's a deceiver. He's a liar. And he has deceived the world, blinded the world to the reality of Jesus, uh, to the gospel. His goal is to keep people from the gospel. And this is a real spiritual reality that Scripture declares. And I'm, I want you guys to, to, to work with me toward a deeper understanding that, that the Bible talks, if, we, if we're going to say we don't believe in the devil, then how can we possibly say we believe in Jesus? Because the New Testament talks about both pretty fully and pretty robustly. Uh, and our faith, the whole reason we gather is because of our belief in Jesus Christ. Satan is the deceiver. He is the tempter. He is the accuser. And I think it's important even to point out that we think of, when we think of the devil, one of the, real, uh, the reasons that we have such a hard time getting our heads around it is because our entertainment, our culture has shaped our vision of the devil as, as this, you know, the horror movies that we've seen. That, that creates this sort of picture that, that, that bends the truth of what Scripture has to say about him. Uh, and, and it's deeply problematic because what it does is it creates a skepticism because the demonic has been so sensationalized by our entertainment uh, that we don't see that the primary way that Satan attacks is not, is not through things like the exorcist, not that people don't become possessed. And I've seen personally people that are deeply oppressed by demonic presence and they do the things that you see in the movies, uh, that, that deep uh, blasphemous quality, that, that, that kind of outrageous behavior, but that's not the normative way. That's a red herring. The primary way that Satan attacks is by tempting and by accusation, tempting you to not take sin very seriously and then accusing you when you go into it that God will never forgive you. It seems to be his really powerful one-two punch, and it works quite well within the church walls every week. Number three, the scripture declares that Satan is not alone. We don't think that there's one creature, one fallen creature that's attacking everybody. Uh, but what scripture declares is that he is the ruler of a kingdom of darkness and that under his control are countless demons and unclean spirits. Uh, I want you to know that, that there is varying views on the origin of the devil and demons. But the, the historic view of the church has been that that the devil and demons were angels that fell. Uh, there isn't enough data in the Bible because the Bible isn't primarily focused on demons and angels. The Bible's primarily focused on God's relationship with humanity. And so when we find ourselves reading through the Genesis account, the serpent's just in the garden. We aren't told where he came from. And I don't think it's so important what the origin is. I think that he had, I agree with Lewis, and I've, I would personally be most comfortable with the historic view uh, of, of he was once good and turned bad uh, because I think that otherwise you end up with a dualism that's dangerous, that falls outside of our orthodox vision of God as, cre 
of creator as all. And I would agree with Luther. The devil is still the Lord's devil. Um, and, and what he means by that is that, not, that God is still ruler over all. Um, and that even the devil's activity uh, is still ultimately under the control of, of God's sovereignty. It doesn't mean that God is making the devil do the things that he does. But it's just meaning that God is still the all-powerful one. Uh, and we'll consider his work uh, in just a minute. So this reality is that, that there is a kingdom. Now, Milton, if you guys have ever read, uh, how many of you guys have read Milton's Paradise Lost? A, a, a few of you. And, and, and that just shows that the ones who have read it, we're all nerds. Uh, but it's, it's a fantastic book. But Milton portrays uh, the kingdom of darkness uh, it, the, as pandemonium. As chaos, essentially. It's called pandemonium in the book. But that's not how the Bible portrays the kingdom of the devil. In fact, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. So they're saying this of Jesus. And he says, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. But then Jesus calls them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In other words, Satan's kingdom is a kingdom that is organized. It is organized in its attempt to bring down uh, the work of God in the world today. And I think that that is very important for us to understand, uh, that there is a whole kingdom of darkness. That's why Paul uses such robust language, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness uh, and rulers of this age. Uh, and that's why there can be so much demonic activity uh, in the world. Number four, we know from Scripture that the demonic are immaterial and manipulative. This is what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says, in which he once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice that, immaterial, not flesh and blood, but deeply manipulative, that we followed, we once followed the course uh, of this world, and this world follows the prince of the power of the air. I think it's important to notice what Scripture says about it, that they are immortal and deceptive. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, you, uh, when he comes down on his critics, he says, you are, the, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, Notice how personal Jesus is about the devil, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That the demonic are subtle and attractive. They're not like the portrayal in the movies. Uh, that there is something beautiful, actually, deeply deceptive about the demonic. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I think that it's a fascinating verse that challenges our, our preconceived notions about what the devil looks like. Uh, the scripture, once again, just as it never gives us a description, physical description of Jesus, uh, we are not told what Satan looks like. Uh, and so the medieval descriptions of Satan as a red creature with horns and a pointy tail uh, ruling over hell, Satan will not rule in hell. I think it's really important for us to understand that. Uh, and, it, and here we are told that he is subtle um, and he is attractive. Uh, and I think that we should know that by the fact that what sells 
in our entertainment world. It is all the things that are the antithesis of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the channel that nobody watches. It's the Hallmark channel. Nobody watches that channel because we don't want the fruit of the Spirit. We like the works of the flesh, uh, which I believe is demonic. And that's what the Scripture says. This is really difficult, you guys, when you really think about this. And the whole world is under Satan's sway. This is exactly what 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, I'm not being sensational here. This is what the Bible says. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That immediately starts to create within us a tension of, of what, is it that, what is it that we give ourselves to? What is it that our, that our minds are captivated by? That Satan has pull, that the demonic realm actually has influence, not just out there, Amongst, you know, it's not like the only people that are, that are influenced by the demonic are, are secret witches. Uh, you know, that's, I don't think that's the problem. I think that the problem is something much more subtle. That's why Lewis saw the devil um, more appropriately portrayed as a, as a businessman with perfectly manicured nails. Uh, and, and, and his point is, is that the way that the devil works is subtly through all the different world orders, through government, through entertainment, uh, through, through culture. And we are influenced by that, and we need to be aware of it. That's the point of this, this message today. Number five, Satan is a murderer, and death is what he brings. But upon the cross, Jesus defeated death and the devil, freeing from his grip all those who place their faith in him through the gospel. I think it's important for us to understand in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, both of those passages declare that the reason Jesus came was to defeat the devil. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since therefore, children, uh, therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. And again, in 1 John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so here we begin to see that Jesus, his entrance into the world was not just simply to work out forgiveness of our sins, but he actually came to bring forth a new reality in which he dominated and destroyed the power and the dominion of darkness, that we have complete victory in him. And what this means, number six, is that Satan in his kingdom is fighting a battle that is already lost, which infuriates him, and why he is working so hard against the work of God because he hates God and hates whatever God loves. It is his ambition to destroy as many lives as possible before his work has come to an end. And I think it's important for us to understand that. But here's the beautiful good news. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. We often talk about Jesus' atoning work and, and, that, and that in him we have been forgiven, that he, through his work on the cross, changed our relationship to God. It's a powerful reality. But we often don't think about Christ as victor, Christus victor, which is that statement that Jesus actually did something powerful. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the principalities and powers that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. And he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. What a powerful statement. 
that Jesus actually conquered the dominions of darkness. And so what does that mean for us? How do we engage in the spiritual battle? Well, this is where I want to close. What it means for you and I is that we who have been set free through the gospel are called to engage in the fight, to proclaim the victory. We are set free for the purpose of doing battle. And we do this by declaring the good news in word and in deed through the surrendering of ourselves to the control of the Spirit in obedience to the Father by faith in the Son. If the goal of the enemy is to destroy our testimony by tempting us to work in independence from God, how do we engage in the battle, the spiritual battle that is raging around us? If the devil and his followers are real and they really are blinding the world to the reality of the gospel, how do we engage in spiritual warfare? Do we engage in spiritual warfare by going out and looking for demons and casting them out of people? Listen, having dealt with demonic possession, I hope I never see it again. That's not what we're looking for. And that in, in nine years of leading a church, I've only dealt with that kind of blatant demonic uh, presence only a couple times. But how often do I deal with people that are deeply deceived, who are convinced that God doesn't love them, who are struggling with belief in the gospel, who are falling into the trappings of believing the lies of this world and the culture around us? How often do we come across people that are in bondage to drugs and alcohol, to porn addiction? How many times do we come into to relationships with people whose, whose relationships are blowing up because they have believed the lies of the enemy? What we need to understand is that our engagement in spiritual warfare, we are called to in, engage in the battle. It's a real battle. The devil is real, and so is his followers, and they are trying to bring down the gospel. They have already lost the battle. And this is how we engage in the battle. And what we see actually in the book of Acts through the work of Paul is that the battle is fought when we preach and proclaim the gospel, when we yield in total submission to the Holy Spirit. And so I would ask you, just as that church in Ephesus recognized that there was much still in their lives that they needed to actually get rid of, what in your life are you holding on to that actually is more of a reflection of the world and its ruler than you are holding to Jesus? How are you divided? Where are you compromised in your faith? Where are you not experiencing the triumph and the victory of Jesus Christ? Because this is what the gospel calls us to, guys. This is where we are called to. James chapter four, verse seven and eight says, submit yourselves therefore to, um, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? We're not called to go out and look for the devil. In fact, Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, he says, protect us from the evil one. He is way too smart and way too powerful. Only Jesus has victory over the devil. We fight the devil by clinging to God that he might fight through us. In fact, the, what James goes on to say is he says, he says, draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. Our victory is not chasing demons. Our victory over the demonic realm is clinging to Jesus Christ, releasing the things in our life that are hindering us from seeing him, laying at the altar the idols that we pile up in our lives because the human heart is an idol factory. You may not have books of witchcraft in your house, but I would argue 
that there are things in your life, probably, that don't honor Jesus, because I know that as I was preparing this message, I was deeply disturbed by the things that I allow in, the influences that I allow in. Because when I read that the entire world lies under the sway of the wicked one, then we need to understand that that world is infiltrated with this reality. So how do we bring forth light and the gospel in a city like Portland? We submit to God. We cling to Jesus. We draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. It is his power through us that gives us victory because it's already been won. Amen?